This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover inside the house there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this couple's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual situations that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. When Michelle Thier logged on in the late hours of the night, her heart raced at the infinite possibilities contained in her little personal computer. Over the last few months, this technological box had expanded her mind and her heart. Through it, she created a new persona with just the click of a button. But her clicks also led to darker results, lies, deception, and even death. On December 11th, 2000, 29-year-old Michelle opened an email from a man named John Diamond. His words shocked her. I signed my life insurance over to you two weeks ago. I'll make it look like an accident, so there's no problem with the money. I wanted to spend my life with you, but since I'm so easily thrown away by you, I guess I'm not worth that much. So, oh well. It was a hell of a ride. A friend is squaring me away with something. I'll take a few hours to think about life and maybe write something. I will always love you and hopefully see you in another life. I love you, John. In an earlier time, such desperate words would warrant an immediate response, but the distance created by the internet can also make humanity cruel. And with another simple click of a button, Michelle Thier turned off the computer and returned to her real life and her real husband, just a few rooms over from where she sat. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore passionate crimes. How does a marriage progress from husband and wife to killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? This week, we will gaze into the twisted and deadly love triangle that emerged between Michelle Thier, her husband Marty, 
and her lover, John Diamond. In a true 21st century affair, a simple online posting planted the seeds for murder. The real cause of the tragedy just might be the new and peculiar form of loneliness unique to the digital world of online relationships. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. All sin begins in innocence. In Colorado, circa 1985, this innocence took the form of a high school romance between 16-year-old Marty Thier and 15-year-old Michelle Forcier. Their young love was passionate, like most young romances, but it took on a new depth due to Michelle's circumstances. Her parents were divorced and rarely around, leaving Michelle to care for her two younger siblings at the expense of her schoolwork and after-school activities. She was kept at a distance from everything, except for Marty. He always accompanied her back home after their dates and would entertain her siblings while Michelle took care of their nightly needs. The pair was like a miniature version of parents, full of responsibility and self-serious love. This relationship was not a joke to either of them. But upon Marty's graduation in 1987, their dependable schedule was disrupted. Marty moved 70 miles away to Colorado Springs to attend the U.S. Air Force Academy, leaving Michelle to finish out her last year of high school alone. Each weekend, Michelle drove to pick Marty up and then brought him back to the academy late Sunday before the school week began again. Her dedication was an impressive illustration of love's willpower, but it wore Michelle down all the same. When Michelle graduated high school, she enlisted in the Air Force Reserves following Marty's path through the academy. While Marty's sights were set on becoming an astronaut, Michelle served stateside during Operations Desert Shield and Desert Storm between August 1990 and February 1991. She reached the status of Tech Sergeant and earned a Medal for Meritorious Service. By June of 1991, 20-year-old Michelle and 22-year-old Marty were married. But once they stepped out from the chapel, the dynamic of their relationship changed. Despite Michelle's own achievements, Marty's career always came first. He eventually decided against space and was sent to flight school at Vance Air Force Base in Enid, Oklahoma. Michelle dutifully followed. They moved again in October 1992 for Marty's continued training in Denver, Colorado. This constant cycle through different locations would soon become the hallmark of their marriage and the source of all their problems to come. Before I continue with Michelle's psychology, please note that I am not a licensed psychiatrist or a psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. 
Psychological research has shown that frequent changes in living locations affect the mind. While most studies have been conducted on children, there is significant evidence that illustrates a lower level of psychological well-being for those constantly on the move. Not only does one feel less stable, but they also become more physically isolated. They lose social conditioning necessary for building strong friendships and community ties. It's a vicious cycle of loneliness. In the case of Michelle Thier, who already experienced many feelings of loneliness during her childhood, her marriage's continued journey across state lines had consequential emotional effects. Moving boxes were packed up yet again in 1993, this time shipped to Falcon Air Base near Colorado Springs. While 22-year-old Michelle kept a tidy home, she soon yearned for more out of life beyond the few days each month she spent on Air Force Reserve services. She decided to leave the military path behind and return to school. By 1994, she graduated with a bachelor's in psychology and sociology. In 1995, the couple followed Marty's career to Melbourne, Florida, where he flew C-130 transport planes out of Patrick Air Force Base. Their lives continued to diverge as Michelle dove deeper into her studies, working towards a graduate degree at the Florida Institute of Technology. Between her research and volunteer work at rape crisis centers and prisons, the darker aspects of human nature consumed her everyday life. She eventually earned a master's degree in 1997. Her thesis focused on the coping mechanisms of female soldiers. But during the summer months of 1997, 28-year-old Marty was stationed in locales as far away as Kuwait. 27-year-old Michelle was forced to while away her hours alone, immersed in the immense research required to complete her thesis. The trauma she studied linked into her waking hours and dreams alike. She didn't have any outlets for her bottled-up feelings either. She had never had a large friend group, and now she lived in a state where hardly anyone knew her at all. She wasn't outgoing in her classes, as she was too focused, and by that level of graduate studies, the social side of college had all but vanished. According to the peer-reviewed publication, The Professional Counselor, or TPC, there is a large amount of evidence and research on the effects of spousal military deployment on marriages. Even though Michelle herself conducted research so close to the subject, she never self-identified exactly what she was going through. By 1997, she had reached the first stage along a hard road for such spouses. To quote the TPC, During pre-deployment and deployment time periods, wives often feel numb, angry, and abandoned due to an upcoming or current separation from their husbands. Furthermore, wives also may experience sadness, loneliness, and anxiety during this phase. The second phase refers to a certain despair characterized by feelings of extreme sadness. A wife may often go through similar stages of grief and mourning when her husband is deployed. Initially, a wife may be in denial that her husband is gone, believing that she will be fine and that he is only away for a few days training. As time passes, she may experience depression and withdrawal as she realizes that her husband will not return for a long time, if at all. 
Michelle may not have known it, but in this time of Marty's deployment, the foundations of the Thiers' marriage developed unseen hairline cracks. But there was one thing the couple still shared, even while fractured by time and space, the computer that sat in their home office. Michelle utilized it for schoolwork and Marty for Air Force business. In addition, they shared a new and expedient form of communication, the email. Michelle and Marty used emails to stay in touch during their frequent bouts of physical separation. Perhaps there was a familiarity and comfort associated with the computer. Perhaps they shared passwords, knowing there was nothing they could hide from one another. That was until a fateful night in late 1999, when Michelle was 29. She would later say that her life changed that unspecified night, and it all began with that glowing box in their office. Michelle wasn't snooping. She would never do something like that. She was minding her own business, checking her own email and messing around with this wondrous and mysterious new tool. It was all just an accident. Suddenly, an image loaded on the screen, and the innocence of Michelle and Marty's lives were forever shattered. Michelle stumbled across a cache of pornography, hidden away in Marty's computerized files. Michelle's mind raced as she went through these images. Photograph after photograph cycled before her eyes, displaying nude women in positions she had never even known existed. Is this what Marty was actually interested in? These women looked nothing like Michelle. For years, she had never even thought to worry about something like this. She and Marty had been together since high school. They were all each other wanted, all each other had. But now, these images gave Michelle a new vision of her husband. Michelle knew one couldn't just stumble across porn like this. It took initiative and desire. The man she loved was actively lying to her, hiding things from her. After all she had done for him, all she continued to do, Marty didn't think that was enough. He didn't think Michelle was enough. He had to turn to the internet to satisfy himself now. Suddenly, all of her unaddressed anxiety reached a boiling point and made a turn toward paranoia. The wheels in Michelle's frazzled mind spun faster and faster, and a more twisted narrative began to take shape. Some of these photographs weren't taken by professionals or ripped from the pages of Playboy. No, these were photographs of everyday women, like the ones Marty would see at the grocery store or the mall, or on his travels to other Air Force bases around the country. These photographs were personally uploaded to the internet by people who wanted to display themselves. After some more research, Michelle realized there were forums set up for these kinds of exchanges. Is that what Marty had done? She could barely stand to think it, but soon enough, this narrative consumed her. 
This folder of images wasn't an innocent error on Marty's part, nor was it just an ill-considered symptom of late-night lust. This was evidence of something much larger. A great fracture opened up in her perception of Marty and her marriage in general. She knew the truth now. He kept moving them around on purpose. He liked spending time away from her. Michelle said years later that she decided it right then and there. Marty Thier was a family man no more. He was requesting these photographs from other women and probably asking for more than photos. Michelle Thier would not stand for this betrayal. When we return, Michelle takes her own internet revenge, spinning her anxieties into a web of lies, sex, and murder. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's best eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And now, back to the story. In the fall of 1999, Marty and Michelle Thier's marriage was headed for chaos. Just as 29-year-old Michelle convinced herself that her husband was having an affair, 31-year-old Marty was called away to Moody Air Force Base in Valdosta, Georgia. But this time, Michelle wouldn't be joining him. Instead, she took on an internship in Alabama. For the first time in years, Michelle made a choice to put her career over Marty's. If he wasn't making their marriage a priority, she wouldn't be either. She moved into a small home just for herself. For five months, Michelle was the master of her own fate, and she liked it. She realized that Marty was very demanding about house cleaning. On her own, Michelle didn't have to waste a lot of time keeping things tidy for her husband. But this taste of independence had a bite to it. She couldn't help but fantasize that Marty was continuing his online sexual liaisons while they were separated. This imagined possibility became a stark reality for Michelle, at least during her time in Alabama. After five months apart, the couple reunited in early 2000 for Marty's new job on Pope Air Force Base in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Despite an inward reluctance to surrender her independence, Michelle returned to the marriage she had vowed to be dedicated to for the rest of her life. Michelle began working for Dr. Thomas Harbin as a psychologist in training. It seemed a balance had been reached between the couple, but this was just a surface-level illusion. 
Returning to the TPC's research regarding separation anxieties in military couples, the Thiers had now reached the critical third phase. While they were finally together for the foreseeable future, the after-effects of the constant fluctuation in their relationship would linger. The TPC stated, The final phase of separation anxiety, denial, or detachment can occur during the post-deployment period. Researchers postulated that this last phase serves as a defense mechanism, which wives utilize when husbands abruptly rejoin their families. Anxiety combined with excitement has been found to impact the restabilization of the couple. Attempting to regain a physical and emotional connection with one another after a long, seemingly permanent separation has been found to be extremely stressful, resulting in struggles with communication, co-parenting, returning to pre-deployment routines, and marital intimacy. This certainly could be seen in the Thier's relationship. Michelle seemingly lost all interest in having children, something that Marty greatly desired. Marty had no idea that Michelle thought he was unfaithful. She kept it to herself, perhaps out of embarrassment or the fear of discovering it was definitely true. But these bottled up emotions couldn't last much longer. Michelle, having spent half her life with Marty, needed an outlet. Perceiving herself as the wronged spouse, a desire for revenge ignited inside of her. With no real social connections outside of her husband and co-workers, Michelle saw only one option. Michelle returned to the scene of her husband's perceived emotional crimes. She logged onto the internet and became someone else. Michelle had heard about forums like this one, which now stared back at her from the glowing screen. It was a simplistic message board format, each user went by an anonymous pseudonym. There was nothing here to trace back to Michelle, as long as she was careful. More careful than Marty, she thought with grim amusement. Michelle typed out a screen name, then deleted it. No, she thought, don't be ridiculous. Maybe this was all a mistake. Maybe this was all in her head. He deserves this, Michelle affirmed to herself. He had it coming. At that moment, Michelle became someone else. She transformed into an anonymous account named Married Brunette. Simple and to the point. And what did Married Brunette want? Michelle leaned back in her chair and looked around at her dark home office. Just a few rooms down from her, Marty was sleeping. Maybe snoring again. Maybe dreaming of other women. Whatever was happening these nights, it wasn't romantic. It wasn't passionate. It wasn't what she had signed up for when she married him nine years ago. Michelle wanted a life back. She wanted her life back. So she decided to take it for herself. Finally, all that pent-up anger was let loose on the keyboard. She didn't need to edit her thoughts at all. They came out quick raw and unfiltered. As married brunette, Michelle said exactly what she wanted to say. Sexy brunette seeks rendezvous with a man. Attractive, intelligent, very sensual professional seeks regular activity partner two to three times a week for long, hot, 
passionate encounters. Looking for emotionally stable, very attractive, physically fit, intellectually stimulating, fun-loving man who is not going bald. 25 to 35, Caucasian, drug and disease-free, over 6 feet tall, must live or work in Fayetteville. I turn heads. If you do too, and meet all of the above requirements, let's meet for coffee and see what happens next. We'll only respond to inquiries that are interesting and stimulating. Discretion is a must. The deed was done. Michelle had turned a new corner in her life. She was going to cheat on her husband, and she was going to do it as much as she desired. Her actions could be classified as retaliatory infidelity. It covers any affair that is spawned as a result of a long-term partner's own infidelity. In other words, it's revenge. David Chester, a psychology professor at Virginia Commonwealth University, said revenge has a biological imperative. It exists to keep people from taking advantage of you, so it's protective, but it can go awry. Chester and his colleagues conducted brain scans of test subjects in response to revenge-based scenarios, including retaliatory infidelity. The results illustrated a potential link between revenge and powerful but temporary satisfaction in the brain. Chester claimed that the part of the ventral striatum or the reward region of the brain was most active when people were seeking revenge against their romantic partner. Such results would show there is indeed an addictive feedback loop when it comes to revenge. Some researchers believe that female retaliatory infidelity is more of a tool to dissuade male infidelity. In the case of Michelle Thier, while Marty's perceived infidelity may have put all of this into motion, Michelle's infidelity didn't stop even after she proved she could also sleep with someone else. In early 2000, she had a short-lived affair with a man named Charles McClendon, but Michelle kept posting online, seeking more partners. The feedback loop took hold, and it soon became personified by one man in particular, John Diamond. 28-year-old Diamond was a born soldier. He served in the army for 10 years from 1989 to 1999. Over six feet tall, Diamond was a block of solid muscle and cut out for any task given to him in the service. He attended multiple military schools, acquiring skills and experience as a ranger, surveillance officer, sniper, and air assault commando. According to Michael Fleeman's book, The Officer's Wife, which traces the entire saga of the Thiers, Diamond was everything Marty was not, spontaneous, action-oriented, self-assured to the point of cockiness, and primal. When Diamond and Michelle first met in February 2000, it was sexy and passionate from the start. What they hadn't expected to find was something deeper. When they woke up in each other's arms, Michelle and Diamond felt a deep comfort and intimacy with one another. They felt love. All this despite the fact that both were now living double lives. Away from Michelle, Diamond's life had been a lot like her own. Diamond had a record of marrying young. 
He had one child with his own high school sweetheart and another with a woman named Lourdes. Diamond and Lourdes were together from 1996 to November 1999. They were still married in February 2000, but they were legally separated, meaning Diamond himself was also exiting heartbreak into the arms of a new lover. John Diamond and Michelle felt companionship and how misunderstood they were by the other people in their lives. As months went by and the affair continued, the two realized they had both signed their lives away to other people too early. But now, they had the chance to make it right. In true 21st century fashion, their love correspondence was conducted over email. Diamond sent Michelle message after message, filled with heartfelt sentiments about the depth of his love and longing. He told Michelle he had never felt like this about anyone else, and he could not imagine living without her now. The birth of this new love was well-timed, as Marty was once again sent away on deployments every few weeks during the first half of 2000. Michelle brought John over to the house as often as possible. She did nothing to hide this from neighbors, knowing they would say nothing to Marty. He was as isolated as she was. Diamond began calling Michelle his fiancée to his friends. Marty and Diamond's legal wife, Lourdes, still knew nothing of this affair. In June 2000, Marty returned home for the summer. He knew things were falling apart with his wife, but he had no idea why, and Michelle wasn't telling him anything at all. So they went to a marriage counselor named Kenneth Castleman. In their first session, Michelle told the counselor, I've changed, and I think Marty needs to recognize that. However, she wasn't honest about the affair, so neither Castleman nor Marty could truly grasp what Michelle meant by this. In his notes, however, Castleman wrote that Michelle was struggling to define freedom for herself, and Marty was struggling to hold on to an old conception of their marriage. In July of 2000, Michelle abruptly moved out of their shared home. Only Marty showed up to the next therapy session. Castleman probed, hoping to find some source of this conflict, but Marty was completely in the dark. The only thing he could even envision that might bother her is his desire to keep a clean home. Marty managed to wrangle Michelle into seeing the chaplain at the Air Force Base. Due to her own history in the service, Michelle reluctantly agreed, though it's hard to believe her heart was ever in this effort. She did finally confront her husband about what she found on his computer, and Marty admitted to having thoughts about sleeping with other women. However, he assured both Michelle and the chaplain that he had never instigated any such infidelity in reality. The chaplain had no idea what to do with this feuding couple and their digital drama. Their conflict was above his pay grade. Michelle continued living on her own, having Diamond over every day. Her personal psychiatrist diagnosed her with depression and put her on a cocktail of antidepressants, anti-anxiety pills, and sleeping medication. By September 2000, Michelle's short-term lease ran out and she moved back in with her husband. But nothing changed. Instead, 
everything only got worse. Her affair continued, and the atmosphere between Michelle and Marty soured. Marty's mother, Linda, recalled a visit to their home that was exceedingly awkward. Michelle called Marty stupid multiple times and shrugged off the hug he tried to give her in front of Linda. Michelle was running out of patience. She couldn't keep living like this. The double life she had crafted on the internet was tearing her apart. She needed a clean break. Diamond agreed, but neither had that much money, so Michelle came up with a plan. She made a list of her marriage's assets and debts, determining what finances would be split in a divorce case, and then she realized she was due for a windfall. In the next year or so, Marty would receive his reenlistment bonus, anywhere from $60,000 to $200,000. Michelle told Diamond as much. They just had to wait a little longer. When Marty was flush, they would finally strike out on their own and begin their new life together. But little did they know, by the end of the year 2000, one point of this love triangle would be dead and gone. When we return, the stress of planning their new life drives Michelle and John apart, until Michelle makes a startling admission that changes the course of all of their lives forever. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Now back to the story. In October of 2000, 30-year-old Michelle Thier and 28-year-old John Diamond touched down on the island of Saba. A month earlier, Michelle had applied to the Saba University School of Medicine, while Diamond applied to work at a local scuba shop. When they checked into the hotel, they signed in as Mr. and Mrs. Thier, but it was clear Michelle was planning on trading in that surname for Diamond. The subterfuge would not have to last much longer, this beautiful island would be their future home. The happy couple went out to dinner with William Cornell, the university administrator. And then, 
Michelle and Diamond flew home to North Carolina on October 23rd, never to return. Michelle never contacted Saba University again. The timeline here gets murky, and this excursion to Saba still remains a mystery. But while the exact details are unknown, this trip represented a symbolic change in this deadly love triangle. After Saba, things would never be the same between Michelle Thier and John Diamond. Diamond's love letters continued unabated, but Michelle began to ignore them. He kept bringing up the move to Saba, or anywhere really, as long as they were together. He also started speaking of having children with Michelle, the same talk that historically put a damper on her relationship with Marty. When Michelle finally responded on November 19th, almost a month after the Saba trip, she told the truth for the first time in a long time. She simply could not move again. Her entire life had been consumed with constant motion from one place to another. Although she wanted to leave Marty, she also couldn't give Diamond what he wanted. She wrote, I truly mean it when I say I do not have the physical, emotional, spiritual, or mental energy to consider it. This kicked off an increasingly desperate and frenzied volley of messages from Diamond. He refused to give up on Michelle. He could not understand why she would ever let go of what they had. He thought the cost of it didn't matter. He thought they both understood that. And if not? Well, then Diamond didn't understand how to live anymore. He had pinned it all on Michelle, and now she was gone. So on December 11th, 2000, he emailed her a suicide note. He said he was going to end it all. And Michelle's response? The same stony silence. Maybe she didn't care. Maybe she didn't believe he would do it. If so, she was right this time. Diamond reached out again the next day. He told her how he had put the gun to his head and tried to pull the trigger three times, but his love for her held him back. He couldn't kill himself knowing that it might hurt Michelle. Even when it came down to his own life, he was more attached to her than he was to himself. He informed her he had returned to his ex, Lourdes, but would never understand why Michelle stayed with Marty, even after he hurt her. This was the first recorded insinuation that Marty was abusing Michelle. Diamond was under the impression that Michelle's husband was physically abusive and had even come close to killing her a few times. As far as the historical record shows, this was most likely a fabrication on Michelle's part. Perhaps such lies began innocently enough during pillow talk with Diamond in the early months of their affair, as Michelle opened up about her emotional troubles in her marriage. She could have slipped in a few white lies that made Diamond more dedicated to loving her. She could have even grown attached to these moments of enhanced affection and devotion, and the lies that created them. Research has shown that the tendency to lie is a self-fulfilling prophecy, reinforced in neural pathways as a person continues to hide the truth. Lying gets easier and more rewarding, even if it causes problems or inconsistencies in the real world. 
This lie about Marty's abuse toward her was the source of all the trouble coming down the line. On December 16th, almost a week after his last email to Michelle, Diamond was hanging out with some friends at Lourdes's house. Drinking a little too much and emotionally riled by venting to his friends, Diamond decided to reach out to Michelle. He stepped outside and called her. When Diamond rejoined the group, he was pale. He slowly explained to his friends what Michelle had just told him. Marty raped her last night. She was enraged and told Diamond she wanted Marty to die. Diamond's friends agreed, urging him to go beat Marty up. Diamond assured them that he had offered his services, but Michelle turned him down. He had thought she was opening back up to him, but then she hung up the phone just as quickly as she answered. John Diamond was back in the dark, or so he told his friends. The next day, Michelle's boss, Dr. Harbin, told her that he wanted to take her and the office manager, Heidi, out for a Christmas dinner before the holidays began. He was surprised when Michelle told him that Marty would be offended if he wasn't invited too. Harbin had never known much about Michelle and Marty's relationship and hadn't even thought to ask, but he acquiesced happily. Both Michelle and Heidi should bring their partners along. Marty was waiting for Michelle when she arrived home. He felt like they hadn't spent any time together for far too long. After their marathon sessions of therapy and their temporary separation, Marty truly believed they had turned over a new leaf. He greeted her when she arrived home with a smile and a waiting glass of wine. For once, she didn't seem unhappy to see him either. It almost seemed like the old times when Marty would go home with Michelle after school and help her play house with her siblings. It almost felt like they were married again. Then she told him the good news. Dr. Harbin had requested that Marty join them for a Christmas dinner tonight. Marty was overjoyed. Michelle had never let him interact with Harbin that much before, so he didn't know much about her work life. I'm right, he thought to himself. Things are changing. We're becoming a real couple again. He was so pleased that he offered to be the designated driver. Michelle directed Marty as he drove to pick up Heidi and her boyfriend from the office. Marty gazed up at the building and smiled at his wife. It seemed like a great place to work. As Heidi and her boyfriend approached, Marty gripped his wife's hand. He told her how much it meant that her boss wanted to make this a true family affair. Michelle, of course, didn't reveal that she was the real architect of this entire situation. With Heidi and her partner on board, Marty drove them all the way to Raleigh, another city, to meet Harbin and his wife for a fancy Christmas dinner. Afterward, Marty dropped off Heidi and her boyfriend back at the office. Then, he put the car in gear to drive his wife home. Michelle stopped him, sudden worry in her voice. She told him she left something back at her desk. She knew how considerate he had been all night, and she felt like a klutz, but would he mind turning around? Marty saw this as just another opportunity to get back on her good side. Tonight, he would do anything for his wife. Michelle told Marty she would be back in just a few moments. 
He watched his wife disappear up the parking lot staircase. Even the way she moved seemed different to him. There was excitement in her steps. Anticipation. Marty knew that meant she was as excited as he was to get back to their home and their bed. So he waited for his wife to return and for his life to finally begin again. Four minutes later, Michelle was still inside her office when she heard the shots. She rushed back downstairs to the parking lot, only to slam to a halt. Marty lay at the bottom of the stairs, leaking blood all over the hard concrete. Everything since Michelle had first created her online identity led up to this exact moment. As Michelle looked down at her dying husband, she screamed. For more information on Michelle and Marty Thier, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Officer's Wife, A True Story of Unspeakable Betrayal and Cold-Blooded Murder by Michael Fleeman, extremely helpful to our research. Thanks again for tuning in to Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with part two of the story of the Thier Diamond Affair. We'll explore the moments directly following Marty's shooting and the years of investigation that followed in its wake. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion as well as all of Parcast's other shows on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Jack Bentel. I'm Lainey Hobbs. <laughs>